We are in Genesis chapter 1 into chapter 2. Uh, we are uh, continuing on in our series, Alpha and Omega, God from beginning to end. Uh, I would encourage you to go ahead and turn there in the Bible. We're going to be focusing on and, and looking at just really a, a, a much shorter section of verses, but it's kind of going to hit all around it, and so it would be good for you to be able to just have the word open in front of you so that you can uh, follow along and, and see it from the text. So uh, here we are, we're, we're in this study we've been dealing primarily with, if, if you were to think about the attributes of God or the, the view of who we've gotten to know God to be as we have been studying these last few weeks, his greatness, his sovereignty, his omnipotence, his omnipresence, his omniscience, this great God is, is ultimately, that's clearly been on display. God's glory, his his um, perfect excellencies, the, the, the beauty of his majesty, all of these things, they have been clearly demonstrated as we've worked through this creation narrative and been considering who this God is that's always been God. But there's another perspective that we're going to turn and see today. That's, we've been touching on it, we've been dancing all around it, but it comes into sharp focus in the creation passage and I think we would be remiss if we didn't stop and consider it, and that is God's goodness. If we're going to know the God that is, that was, that is to come, the God who's always been God, the Alpha and Omega, we have to know and consider his goodness because he has always been good, always will be good, and is good right now. Now, I think most of the people in this, sitting in this room, we would affirm that. We would, we would agree. We, 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 know the, we, we know the Bible verses. And just in case you don't, we're going to hit on some today. You, we know the sayings. God is good all the time. All the time. Right, yeah, yeah. That's not probably the first time you've heard that. I was concerned that maybe that was old enough or ethnically different enough that we wouldn't get it here. But you did it, so thanks for that. Makes me feel a little better. Um, but but there's this, this, that we get that, we can affirm that, we know that. Uh, we even know it in terms of cultural engagement. In fact, in, a, in, in one of the equip classes this morning, the one I'm in, um, we were talking about church history, and, and the comment came up that, you know, I thought I was coming up with this profound question about the existence of God, and God can't possibly exist because evil exists. That's a cultural way. We... we we know that the God of the Bible, culturally, even there's a cultural understanding that God is good as the Bible depicts him. Otherwise, why would something like evil exist? And so, so in some way, we could all see that that's a, it's, it, it seems to be a general understanding, even in the world in which we live, that God is good. But much like sovereignty and much like, much like his greatness and his glory... Our actions and attitudes often betray what, what we say is often different than how we act. So when, the, when the bottom falls out, when, 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 when life is good, when everything's going the way we want it, want it to go, when we get the promotion at work, when we get the new car, the new house, and, and we wanted that, um, when, when, when our relationships are drama-less, when when um, life is happening as we anticipate it will and should, when our plan is going to plan, it's easy to affirm, both in word and deed, that God is good. But when the bottom falls out, when suddenly life is out of control, when things aren't happening according to our plan, when, when suddenly we find out our relationships with others aren't as strong as we thought, or the new stuff loses its newness and quits feeling we, we quit feeling satisfied in it or when god forbid the thing we value most in life we lose then suddenly we're struggling i've had this conversation a number of times and and one in particular stands out to me in the midst of struggle, in the midst of trial, one of, the, one of the deepest struggles that this person shared with me was remembering that God is good all the time. That all the time, God is good. The truth is, he always has been, 
He always will be, and he is right now. And that, that, that revelation of the goodness of God starts all the way back at the very beginning of all things. So we're going to read about that. We're going to study it. We're going to talk about it today. Genesis chapter 1. I'm going to pick up in verse 31 and read into two, th- two, chapter 2, verse 3. We'll pray, and then we'll dig in. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Let's pray. Father, we know, we, 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 we know in general of your goodness. I I, I just pray today that by the power of your spirit, through the working of your word, that you will confirm that in our heart, transform our hearts so deeply, so abundantly, so, so blatantly, that in every situation and circumstance, we proclaim your goodness. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's been my experience in, 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 in my own walk, personally, and, and as I've walked alongside many others over the course of this ministry and, and the ministry we were doing before we started the church, it, it's, it's been my experience that it's especially difficult to remember that God is good when everything appears to be going badly. When, when the world, as we deem it, and, or as we describe it, when it's going badly, then it's hard for us to think that God is Good. I just shared with you a, a conversation that, that I had had, and I've had that conversation a number of times. And it, what often happens, it, it, it seems to me, what often happens is we get into this, in, into this way of living and way of thinking that God is good sometimes. Now, I don't think any of us would say that out loud, but we, 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 we begin to act as if God is good when things happen that I want. But I'm wrestling to believe that he's good when things happen that I don't want. We, we, we look around at other people and we, 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 we see them doing well and getting everything that they seem to want. And, and, and oh, why is God being good to everybody but me? We ask questions in the midst of hardship and struggle. Why me? Why am I dealing with Why not this person? I, I know this person's worse than I am. You've never thought that. <laughs> Caleb made her. It's not a shame. I have. <laughs> me too. Thanks for not making me be alone. <laughs> of course we have. Why is God good to everyone but me? A few weeks ago, I talked about the child who, you know, based on the circumstance and in that situation, they're not getting, you're so mean to me. You're always so mean to me. Because in their view, all they can think about is this right in this moment. I, I don't know what made me do this. I don't know why I thought to do this. I, I Googled this phrase, why is God good to everybody but me? I Googled it just to see what would come up. And thousands of hits and, and uh, a whole list of related searches that I, could, that I could go and research about why God is good to everyone but me. Blog posts, articles, Q&A sites answering this question like, uh, I, don't know, I don't know where they're at or who has formed them, but I, I think you probably have heard of like Quora.com, Q-U-O-R-A. People ask a question to the internet and the internet answers, you know. Um, all kinds of Q&A sites have sought to answer this question. And, 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 and I thought about it. It, it, it. You know, it's convicting because I'll admit I struggle, have struggled and will continue likely to struggle at times with these thoughts. But these questions betray there's a reality that there are times that, that many, probably most of us, maybe, probably really all of us at one time or other, think that God might be good. But he's not always good. Or maybe he's just not good enough. He isn't always the good I want him to be or isn't good all the time. And I I was reminded in this process of a quote from a guy named Paul Tripp out of a book. He's focusing on suffering. And 
And he's asking a couple of questions, and he's challenging this thought around the idea of suffering and God's goodness. And he writes this. He says, what could be more important for a person who's enduring the unplanned, the unexpected, the unwanted, than to remember the beautiful reality of the constant presence and overflowing goodness of God? The very thing I need to remember, is, his question is, is drawing out, the very thing I need to remember is the thing I question, is the thing I begin to wonder about. What else do I need to know? What would be better for me to know? When you feel unprepared, alone, overburdened, and besieged, but, what, but God is able to give you reason to hope again, to believe again, and to live again. When hope in yourself, others, and circumstances has failed you, you need a rock on which to stand and a hand of help for which to reach. There is no rock so firm as the rock of Christ Jesus. And there is no hand so strong and caring as the hand of the Father. Blindness to God's presence and goodness and to the caress of His grace only makes the heavy burdens of suffering seem even more impossible to bear. See, Paul, Paul Tripp is building out of something that connects every person that's ever lived to suffering. But he's recognizing the very thing that also unites every person that ever has lived is that we are the creation of a good creator. That's true of every image bearer of God. And as we saw last week, that is every person who has ever lived. They are the creation of a good creator. And sometimes we fight so hard to identify in our suffering that we unintentionally undermine the reality that there is a greater truth to behold. Our God is good. And you may be sitting here. It's hard for me to imagine that this person's in the room. But we live in a very affluent society, in a very affluent world. And you're struggling to identify with the idea of needing to even care about God's goodness because you've had a pretty good, easy, simple life. I would just challenge you with this. You're satisfied with something that is tiny and in, it, 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 it's a mist of smoke in the wind in contrast to the eternal goodness of God. As, as C.S. Lewis is famously quoted for saying, I didn't put this up there and I'm not even going to quote it verbatim, famously quoted for saying, we're like kids. Our, our desires are, are, are too small. We're satisfied with things that are too small. We're, we're happy to make mud pies in a slum as opposed to take a vacation at the beach because we have no idea what is being offered to us. In some way, every one of us struggle with this reality. We don't recognize and we don't fully understand, but God's word clearly shows our God is good. In fact, as, as, as we come to this and as we think about this, as I think about these verses, the, the reality of his goodness is, is it's woven into, it's absolutely intrinsic to the whole creation story. Look back at this passage that we just read from. Look back at what, look back at what we just read. So verse 31 of chapter 1 is closing off the, the, the uh, chronological, the, the chronological, sorry, the chrono- chronological study of creation over the course of six days. He comes to the end of the sixth day and sees it and says, and, and God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. Everything he had done across those six days is very good. And then, and then we get past chapter 2, verse 3, where it talks about day 7. And it begins to talk about the creation event again. But this time, it begins to look at creation, not through the lens of time and the flow of time, but through the lens of God's crowning jewel of creation Mankind, And he begins to show us what it looked like and, and zooms into day six and gives us a view of God creating man and allowing man to begin to exercise his image and, and exercise some authority over creation and demonstrates to the man that it's not good for him to be alone. And, and all of this happens on day six. And then, and then we're, we immediately, if you move into chapter three, we immediately move into this, the, the narrative of the story. But we could easily miss... That verse 31 could, could effectively follow chapter 2, verse 24 or 25. Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become flesh, become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. 
And just as easily as it follows at the end of chapter 1, it could pick up right here, and God saw everything that he created. It was very good. And thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all that, the host of them. And, and on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day. This is, this is in some ways functioning and drawing both of these, these narratives or both of these, these uh, uh, perspectives shared about what happened in the creation event. It's drawing both of them into it and saying, God looked at all that happened in those six days. And it was good. It was very good. So our good God created a good world. And, so I, 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 and he complete, completed a good work. And so that's just... How I'm going to frame the rest of this sermon is seeing those things applied. God is good. And the world he created and the work he completed are more than good enough for us. They're not just good enough. They're more than, they're, 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 they're so much more abundantly than just good enough. But they are good. The problem isn't that God's goodness or, or lack thereof in this world. The problem is that God's measure of goodness and our measure of goodness don't always align. Right? I, that, that's really at the heart of the problem. Now, I can say God is good, and I can say the world he created is good, and I can say the work he completed is good. But the reason we struggle with it, and, and I think many of you would even affirm that, but the reason we struggle with it is that our equation, equating on, and calculating of goodness isn't always aligned. Uh, his measure of goodness and our measure of goodness are often not the same. So, here, here's the thing. Here's our problem. We are plagued with the knowledge of good and evil, without a perspective to really understand the two of them. You know, we, our, our, our sight line, our, our perspective is so small. We deem what's good based off of what's happening in a moment. God's measuring goodness off of an eternal view. He's looking at it from as if seeing the whole thing. We say it feels good, and so it must be good, even though it's clearly deadly. Right? We, we do all kinds of things that feel good for a moment, but in life, in an instant, or even over a long time. I smoked for, uh, I don't know, a long time. I started really young, and I quit when in my mid-20s. I, I think it was like 16 years. I started when I was about 10, and I quit around 26. So, so the last part of that, I didn't think smoking was good. <laughs> in fact, I hated it. I really would have liked to quit sooner. But it's a slow death, right? Like, it's, it's killing me. But boy, I'm, 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 every time I'm angry, what do I want to do? Every time things aren't, I'm feeling a little stressed, i got to have that nicotine. I mean, maybe, maybe yours isn't cigarettes. Maybe yours is, I don't know, tobacco or some, some other thing that you're seeking to relieve your stress. And if it feels good, oh, you know, it's killing you, but, oh, you go right ahead. It's good. It makes you feel good. We say something feels good. If something feels good, it must be good. And even though it's in direct contradiction to the commands of God. How can that be good? But we do it all the time. Our culture is standing in affirmation of and, 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 and the world we live in. And, and, and many even in the church, within God's body of believers, are standing in affirmation of those things that would stand in direct contradiction to the commands of God. But here we are. It's so good to not confront people in their sin. It's good to just love people and accept them. There's a goodness to that. But there's an evilness in the fact that you know somebody and you see their sin condemning them and killing them and yet you do nothing. But we say it feels good. It, it must be. If, if it feels good, it must be good, even though it might... We're just in direct, in a direct way, overlooking or outright denying the dignity and value of another person. I used this illustration in, in a discussion I had in our community group the other night. Just the idea of pornography seems so victimless, especially for the single person, right? Because I'm not married to anybody. At least I'm not sleeping around a bunch. But you're consuming the images of the person on the screen as if they are an object and not a person. How dare you? They are an image bearer of our God. As we walk around and, and we let our eyes wander and lust and desire, we're not really hurting anybody. 
concept you're devaluing the very thing that holds value in a person. Absolutely rejected. There's nothing good about that stuff. There's no way to look at it as if it's good. Now, our, our problem is, is that we value things so radically different. So we must start. We must start. This is the place we have to start, that God is good. He's the standard of it. He's the one who dis- determines it. He's the one who's able to see it. He, in his very nature, he defines it. But for us to really understand what it means, we have to understand what does it mean that something's good, that God is good. What is good? There's some indicators of it. There's actually indications of it in the text all around this. So, so God speaks in chapter 2 of a, a tree of knowledge of good and evil. There is a contrast to what is good. There's a distinction to be made, something other than good. He says that the man being alone in chapter 2, it's not good. So we're already beginning to see that God has an understanding and a distinction and a contrast to be made between those things that are good and those things that aren't. And as it plays out over the scripture and it plays out over the rest of the passage, we begin to see that there's a moral a moral idea, a moral presentation of a difference between morality and immorality, a difference between what's pure and what's impure. There's good, moral purity, and there's evil, immoral, impurity. There's things that are desirable versus undesirable. It's good that the man is with a woman. It's good that the man has someone like him that's a good help to him. It's, it's good that's desirable. It's not good. It's undesirable that the man would be alone. And there's benefit. There's, it's a beneficial versus harmful. The man can't live up to all, God, all of God's commands if he's all alone. How does a man follow the command, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth? Hey, I blessed you. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And the man's like, uh, you asked me to do something that's impossible. We, we, we have to recognize, there, there, in, in this word, this idea of goodness and God being good, there's moral purity. There's desire. There, there, he's to be desired. He's beneficial. He's benevolent. He's good. God is ultimately an, is the only standard for which we have to even equate this. And, and the scriptures affirm this. I, I, I could read so many. I'm going to give you two. Psalm 34, 8 from the Old Testament. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. He's desirable. He's pure. He's morally pure. He's, he's beneficial and benevolent. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. There's so much said in that verse. I could preach almost the whole sermon from this one verse. God is good. And if you want good, you take refuge in the good God. God is good. Taste and see. It's a, it's a call to actually test him in a sense, right? Come and look at him. Come and see him. Come and really put him to the test and put your, put your misconceptions and your presuppositions and, your, and the lies that you believed all your life. Put them aside and look at who God is according to what the Bible says and you will see he is good. Luke 18, 19. Jesus is obviously teaching and, 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 and preaching and healing people and casting out demons and, and people are seeing this and a ruler comes to him and says, hey, Good teacher, what can I do to inherit eternal life? And, and Jesus says to him, this is his response, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, now here's what we, we have to be careful to, to say, is that Jesus isn't suggesting that he himself isn't good. right? But he's recognizing the standard of goodness is God. And God is the one who approves of and determines what is good. What's this guy's? What's this guy's measure of goodness? How, how can he say, how can he come up and walk along and, and see some guy that's cast out some demons and, and, and done some miracles and said, hey, good teacher. What, what, what's your standard for goodness here, bud? What's your standard for goodness? You got what you wanted from him? Your legs were out of alignment and he straightened them out for you? Like that's one... There's a preacher walking around doing that. I can't think of his name off. Todd White. Walking around, does that kind of stuff. 
He made you rich. He gave you what you wanted, so, so, so he's good. He's, he's a source of what makes you feel good, so he must be good. There's all kind of people that, that the scripture tells us that, the, that demons appear as angels of light. There's all kinds of things that appear good that are actually deadly, that are evil. God is the very standard of goodness. He's the one who approves what's good. He's the one who determines what's good. He's the one whose design is, is good. God is pure goodness in every aspect, in his moral purity, in his desirability. In fact, life without God, even if it feels good for a moment, is ultimately bad. You can't have a good life without our good God. You can't have moral purity without the goodness of God. You can't have uh, benefit without harm, without the goodness of God. And, and here's this, this challenge, this, this challenge to his nature is, oh, if evil exists, then, then, then God must not be good. The very fact that evil exists is a demonstration of our badness, not his. It's a demonstration of our rejection of him, not his failure, not his lack of care or concern. In fact, the very fact that God came and endured evil, put on flesh to dwell among us and endured evil and took on suffering by suffering himself, took on death by dying himself, is a demonstration that God is not only, not, he, he, God is not indifferent to suffering and evil, but he's the only one with a good solution that's eternally lasting. So I tell the world when they, and I'm not, I'm speaking more directly to you than I would to a person who says this to me on the street, but put that in your pipe and smoke it, <laughs> right? Our God took on suffering and he will put it away. He will end it completely. You know anybody else that can do that? Then sit down and shut up. That's what I'd like to say. It's not ever what I say, right? That's the idea. God is good. Maybe not always according to the way we see him and define goodness because some guy, sometimes God lets things hurt us. Because he's a good father, he disciplines his children like all good fathers do. And yet, because we have fathers that are bad that abuse us and don't just discipline, we pretend that any discipline then is bad. Or any hurt is bad. If we find our refuge in God, we will never know harm from him. We, will, we, we might know some hurt, but we will only ever know the benevolence that disciplines and shapes and conforms and grows and encourages and eternally blesses. I've said it before, uh, it's been a while since I've said this, but, but, but God will absolutely trip you so that you fall flat on your face to keep you from running off the cliff that only he knows is there. Just like a parent would catch their kid by the lock of hair that, that they can get their hand on to keep them from running in front of a car because they don't realize the car's coming to smash them. Let's hold him to an honest standard. Oh, wait, he's it. God is good. And God's world is good. And how do we know his world is good? Because he said it's good. He says it's good. And he did so over and over and over again. In verse 4, it, as, as light is, he, let there be light. Light shines and God sees the light. And he says, it's good. Who would argue with that? God, I like light. We all like light, right? <laughs> light is good. It's helpful. It's beneficial. It even representative of a moral purity. Like there's a whole symbology happening there. Verse 10, at the end of, I think it's the end of day three, because he doesn't say anything about day two. Now, I'll just, I'll just deal with this quickly. I'm not going to say a ton here, but I, 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 I looked up just to see what some of the answers given in the world are. And the very first one, I feel like that's why i got to deal with it. If you go and you Google this and you see this first question, I just think it's, I think they're off a little bit. It's an article, I think it was out of Christianity Today, talking about that God doesn't like division, and so he was dividing light from, or water above and water below, and so he didn't call that good. 
I, I think it's true that God doesn't like division. I think you can see that all across the, the mission for the fullness of time is to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. But, but I think that argument falls flat from that passage because not only did God separate waters from above and below on day two, he divided waters and, and land on day three. So, so the, the idea, he, he's dividing these things for a purpose. He's dividing them because he has intention to fill them with, with different creatures, right? So, so, so I don't think that, that that's the case. I think what happens is in day two, he is not finished. It's not completed. He has created an atmosphere, but left only an ocean on the face of the earth. And so only one creature that he intends to create is able to exist, or two creatures, the, the creatures of the air and sea. But he's not to the place where he can put his people yet. And so I think at the end of day three, he counts that good in verse 10 because that is the habitats, the formation, the habitats are formed and they are made ready for life to fill it. Verse 12, he, he calls the, the, the putting of the sun, moon, and stars good. Verse 18, the, the birds and the fish, good. Verse 21, Good, right? There, there's all these ways in which he says it's good. And then he comes day six after he's completed everything, after there's actually a moment in day six that he says it's not good. He comes to verse 31 where he's finished all of his work and he says it is what? Very good. It's complete. It's as I intended to be. It is, it, it's pure. It's, it's, it's beneficial to those who have put in it, to, to the creatures that live in it. it it's, it's, it's filled with, with life that's going to be able to feed in it, right? Like, it's, it's good. It's actually, it's exactly what I want it to be. He's the one that says it's good. He approves of it, and he calls it good. So, so, so you think about what he's done. He has created a sanctuary in which we could dwell with him and, and live with him. He is our God. And he, and we as his people, he's created a sanctuary in which we can be known and he can be known. And, and this sanctuary is, is, is marked by a few things, abundance. How many trees did he give to the man and woman to eat? All but one. Now, I don't know how many that is, but he didn't say a few, right? And, and, and their cultivating of the earth is going gonna, is gonna to grow and be fruitful, Here's the thing. God isn't against abundance. He wants you to know abundance. He just doesn't want to be displaced by your abundance. He doesn't want to be less valuable to you than your abundance. In fact, abundance is only abundant if he's involved. Because otherwise, it's not good. He gave every tree, right? He gave... Every, every creature was to eat of the green plants and every tree with fruit is to give, given to the people. And, and, and he says, every one of them, but, 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 but one. Just one. You can have all the others, but one. This is not the act of a stingy, less than generous God. This is a God who blesses his people abundantly. It's marked with harmony. Everything in its place, fulfilling its function, being what God created it to be. Even mankind. It's one of the few places in all scripture that you get to see mankind doing what mankind was designed to do. Bearing the image of God. Exercising dominion. Naming animals, right? Seeing one another. He sees that. He, he sees the woman and he, I think, in that moment wants nothing more than to be fruitful and multiply, right? Like he is so impressed. There is one like me. Bone of my bone. Flesh of my flesh. The one another's, it's, it's this harmony, this is the reality of this harmony. Everything working together as intended to be all over this creation. And intimacy. So, so abundance, harmony, intimacy, clo close relationship, knowing and truly being known. Chapter 2 ends with the verse, they were naked and not ashamed. Now come on, that's not going to happen in our world today. It's the idea of it makes me want to cover up some more. I'm standing here on display for everybody, and all I can think about is how can I hide? Right? That's what was given. This good world that we were intended to be able to enjoy and thrive in and live in intimate relationship with God and one another in. 
And what have we done? We take these good things and we make God things out of them, right? We, we displace God with them. Food given to us in abundance. We ask of it as something to do. So we ask of it to do something that it was never intended to do. I mean, it was created. It, it tastes good. It was created to be helpful to us and, and beneficial for us. Now, I, I've struggled with this maybe not all of my life, but when I quit smoking, I replaced one addiction with another. I quit smoking and I started eating. I mean, it just was a natural transition. I swole up like 30 or 40 pounds. Over the last few years, uh, you, you watched some of it happen. Uh, I have eaten more health, healthy. I've, I put a little bit of weight back on and I'm re- realizing that. And, and here's the reason. Because I get stressed and one of my natural inclinations is seek comfort from food. How in the world's food going to comfort? We have a whole category of it. Name that for crying out loud. How does it ever comfort you? You eat too much of it, you feel sick. That's not comfortable. Right? Ice cream is so good going down. I love it. That's my... mm, Can't even have it in the house. I've learned over the last few years, I'm still learning this. There's a right time to feast. There's absolutely a right time to feast. To to, to gather around the table and to feast with friends and family. To celebrate the goodness of God's abundant provision is such a blessing. But when that feast becomes the norm of your life and you think that's what you've got to have to feel good, that's a problem. It's right to fast. It's right to set some food aside for a time and say, you know what? All I need is God to set it aside and just trust that the Lord is going to provide. But what happens if all you do is fast? You die. God gave us food that's, that, that, that fuels us to, to do his work, to, to, to give us a way to accomplish the mission he's called us to. And he's made it so that we can enjoy it. It's right to enjoy his food in the right way. It's good to enjoy his food in the right way. And he's blessed us with it. He filled the earth with plants and, and, and trees that bear fruit that would feed us and fuel us. That we could feast on and that we could fast from. And we always end up running to these extremes because we're in pursuit of something good. When he's the good that we so desperately need. Sex. My kids were growing up. And I know there's a bunch of kids in here, so I'm going to try to be careful here. But my kids were growing up. They were exposed to things earlier than I would have liked them to have been. We had that talk early. I think Cameron was eight and Tristan was probably around six, something like that. So we developed a phrase in our house. It's a beautiful and wonderful thing. And now even today, I don't even have to say sex. If I say it's a beautiful, wonderful thing, they know exactly what I'm talking about. It's a beautiful, wonderful thing. I grew up, not, I don't think my parents intentionally made, wanted me to, to receive this, but the culture seemed to be applying it too. Sex was dirty. It wasn't to be talked about. It was, oh, no, 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 no. We don't do, we don't do that. How am I here? <laughs> how, how are you here? You do. <laughs> That's the way. I, 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 again, I don't know that that was the intended message. It's what I received. It's just dirty. No, it's good in the right context. There's a way in which God intended for us to enjoy that and committed lifelong male-female relationships. That's all the way through the scripture. And yet, what have we done? We've perverted it. Seek to enjoy sex in all kinds of ways. All by ourselves. In same-sex relationships. Outside of marriage. Sometimes even when you're married, outside of marriage. It takes that thing. We're after something good. Who doesn't want to feel loved and accepted and received and, and, and to be able to be in front of somebody that just accepts you? What I've learned in, in the course of my life is that sex outside of God's intended design is never about the other person. It's always about consuming, seeking something. Desiring something, needing, I need something fulfilled in me. We take 
in, in a pursuit of something good, we take something that God gave us as a blessing. He blessed them and said, go be fruitful, multiply. It's a blessing. It's a good thing. He's twisted it, perverted it. The one and others. We can and should enjoy intimate fellowship. And we can enjoy family togetherness. A couple weeks ago, I, I challenged you. On, and, and, and I told you when I said it, I said, I know I'm about to step on some toes. I don't like doing that. It's a good thing to do. It's a necessary thing to do. It leads us to, to godliness. I don't enjoy it. But I challenged you that there's ways in which we deify our kids. That soon, our, If we're not careful, our kids become our gods. We devote our whole lives. We sacrifice everything for them. We, we set everything else and everyone else aside for our kids. The best thing you could do for your kids is tell them no. And yes. And wait. The best thing you could do for your kids is discipline them when they are doing bad and reward them when they are doing good. The best thing you could do for your kids is let your kids be kids and your God be God. You are asking them to be something they will never be able to accomplish when you deify them. You're asking them to fulfill a a need in you that they can't possibly fulfill when you deify them. But they are a blessing. The scripture tells us they are a blessing. So it's good. Enjoy your kids in a way that's honorable and deifying to God. Enjoy them. They are a good gift. Let's have lots of them. Let's fill this room full of them. Right? It's good. But they are not God's. Good, good things are meant to be enjoyed in the right context and in the right relationship. So, so when we hear people saying, put all this stuff aside, you don't touch, don't eat. That, this is what Paul is dealing with in, in the New Testament when he was writing to Timothy. He says, for everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. The idea of thanksgiving is that I'm satisfied with your good gift. I'm not asking it to do something it wasn't intended to do. I'm receiving it in satisfaction and recognizing you're the giver. This thing is drawing my attention to you, not replacing you. But there's no sense in us running around trying to, trying to inhibit and, and, and write everything off. Everything created by God is good. And nothing's to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. But when it becomes God to us, when we must have it, if we think our life is to be good, if it's absolutely necessary, if we would sacrifice everything else for it, then be careful with God's good gifts and the good world that God created. Because nothing is good apart from God. God's completed work is good. So God is good, God's, God, God's world is good, and God's completed work is good. Everything about it. He comes to this place, he's finished the work, and he calls it very good. You even recognize that, the emphasis on the very good. Chaos had been formed in the cosmos, boundaries had been set, habitats had been formed, and those habitats had then been filled with life. God's creating work was finished, right? It's finished, And the clearest indication that it is very good is not just the word very good, although the words are important, but the deed that he he did next. What did he do? He rested. See, this this is so important. And it's actually a pattern that we see established in the scripture. God didn't need to create anything else. It measured up to his standards. It was approved by him. It was able to be called very good by him. The very standard of and definition of goodness is able to look at it and say, this is very good. There's nothing else to be done. So what do I do? I rest. There's nothing else to do. It's very good. God's completed work is always going to be very good. When it wasn't good, what did he do? There's one time in the whole process, he says, it's not good that man's alone. What did he do? He created something, right? When it's done, when it's finished, he rests because there's nothing else to do. See, what we, we, we have to recognize this is this God isn't resting because, oh, gosh, I'm tired. I need a weekend. 
I'm not going to make it a whole other week of creating. I just need to take a break. God created everything, heavens and earth and all the host in them. That simply tells us that God created everything. If it isn't God, it's been created by God. That's, that's what that means. So here he is. He's created everything, and it's very good. There's nothing else to do. So, so he rests, not because he's exhausted, but because he's completed the work. It's a, it's a, a rest of accomplishment, not exhaustion, a rest of, of celebration, not, not tiredness. He has finished his work. And this pattern, we see it over and over through the scripture as God continues to accomplish the work he intends to accomplish throughout redemptive history. Jesus' death on the cross, famous saying, one of his famous final statements hanging on the cross, John 19, 30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head up and uh, bowed his head and gave up his spirit. See, Jesus wasn't killed on the cross. Jesus died willingly on the cross. He didn't commit suicide. But when the time was right, he gave up his spirit. It's a willful submission to death. It's a willful going into death. He gave up his spirit. He died when he knew the time was right. Now, we don't get that because we're not God, but Jesus did. Do you know what Jesus, what, 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 what we see do, Jesus doing after his death? Now, there's a whole theory about, oh, he went into hell and all this stuff. He died. There's another famous statement he, said, he made on the cross. Do you know what he said to God just before he died? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right? And then he dies, into your hands I commit my spirit. The writer of Hebrews gives us another view of what Jesus did after he died. Hebrews 1.3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Talking about Jesus. After making purification for sins. What do you think he's talking about there? The cross. He sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. He sat down. His work is finished. The redemptive work is done. So he rests. At the end of the world, Revelation 21.6, we've already looked at this. And he said to me, this is Jesus, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end to the thirsty. I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. And he's talking about, it's finished. I'm going to make everything new and I'm going to let everybody that has known me and found refuge in me come into my rest. They're going to drink from the spring of the water of life. They're going to live eternally with me. And the whole context of that passage shows us that God is doing a work. And when it's completed, he will rest. And we will rest with him. Not meaning that we will never do another thing. Not meaning that we won't, ex we won't do some work in the new heavens and new earth. But we will not toil any longer. We will not struggle and suffer any further. We will enter his rest. And the sanctuary that he had created, that now we've tainted, that would be nothing in comparison to where we're going. So we see Jesus' death on the cross as, a, as another uh, parallel to this. We see it at the end of the world, and, and even in each and every one of his people, we see this pattern. Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God is always completing his good work. And his good work is always good. It's always good. His completed work is always good. There's a saying that, that people run around using, and I understand why they do this, because they're, they're, seek, they're reacting against legalism and fundamentalism in the church. And, and the saying is, Jesus didn't die to make good people or bad people good, but he made dead people live. And I appreciate the sentiment of that saying, but it's, it's really a lie. It's one of those Christian trite sayings that he died to make you good. <laughs> Because without him, we're not good. We're bad. We are the evil in the world. Apart from Christ, we are evil. I never killed anybody. My name's not Hitler. Who are you to call me evil? All who have sinned. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
No one seeks God. No one is righteous. None. We're all evil apart from him. If he began the good work of redemption in us, he will complete that good work. And when that work is completed, we will be good. And dead people will be alive. Both are true. But he doesn't want us to wait. In fact, Ephesians 2, you were dead in your sins, but God made you alive. At the end of chapter, or in the middle of chapter 2, verse 10, you were, you, you, he, he, he has enabled you to do the good works that he has set aside for you to do. You're saved unto good works. So we're, we're being called all along. This good work compelling us to do good works. God's good work in each of us do good works. So yeah, Jesus did die to make dead people live. And in so, in so doing and making us live, he is making us good. God is good. The world he created and the work he completed are more than good enough for us. And so, in conclusion, we don't have to look anywhere else. Who doesn't want good in their life? Who doesn't want to live the good life? I think we all do. I think it's natural human desire to live the good life, to have good things. And where do we find that? Our good God and his good gifts and his good work. It's right to long for that. We don't have to look anywhere further than him. There's nothing else that can replace him. There's nothing else that can satisfy only him. Living to his glory and doing the right thing and living in obedience to him and conforming our lives to his word as opposed to living however we feel like is good. Living to his glory is good. Maybe hard. Maybe parts of your old self that have to be put away and have to be cut off and have to be let go. Doing the right thing may, may cost you. And it may seem like it's bad in the moment. But when it's in pursuit of God, it is good. I told you guys a story about a man named Musa when I came back from Africa. We sat in, uh, it was in our compound in this village, and we're sitting there, and he's there, and we're talking, and, and oh, man, he says, I want to follow Jesus. I want so bad to follow him. But I can't. My brother won't let me. See, if I follow Jesus, then he'll kick me out of my compound. I'll lose my house. I won't have in my work. I won't. As gently but as directly and truthfully as I could say, I I said to him, you're going to pick that, what you say is good, over eternal good. It may feel like it costs something as we seek to live the life we've been called to live here. We might lose relationships. We might be seen as bigoted and backwards simply because we affirm the goodness of God's word. We might be ridiculed. We might face persecution. But in the midst of it, I think we'll find that we've been able to taste and see that the Lord is good. There's nothing more more good, more better is what I almost said. in him. Let's pray.